One of my favorite movies is the 2012 dark comedy, Burning. It's based on a 1996 murder in the small East Texas town of Carthage. It boasts a wonderful cast of characters. Jack Black as Bernie Tita, a chubby, generous, kind mortician's assistant. Shirley MacLaine as Marjorie Nugent, the rich, lonely widow who tormented Bernie and finally drove him to murder. Matthew McConaughey as Danny Buck Davidson, the tenacious district attorney who battled a whole town and finally saw Bernie sentenced to life in prison. And a host of townspeople, some of whom were played by actual Carthage residents and most of whom supported Bernie in his hour of need, even though he readily confessed to killing Mrs. Nugent. I've watched the movie a number of times, laughing at the description of the various parts of Texas, almost falling out of my chair as Bernie drives down Main Street animatedly singing, Love Lifted Me, laughing as Danny Buck Davidson calls reporters into his office and spins his wheel of misfortune, then stages a contest designed to arrest deadbeat dads. Funny stuff. But I must confess to feeling a tinge of guilt as I watch the courtroom scenes and I'm rooting for Bernie. Because after all, at its core, this movie is the story of a man who shot an 81-year-old woman in the back four times and hid her body in a deep freezer and lied to her friends and family for nine months. The movie only tells part of the story. So sit back and sip a Trinidad and Della as we try to find out just exactly who Bernie Tita was. Is he the chubby, lovable teddy bear of a man who finally snapped under the constant pressure of demanding, dominating woman? Or is he a calculating, lying, gold digger and a cold-blooded murderer? Will the real Bernie Tita please stand up? Let's start with what we know. Bernie Tita was born in the East Texas town of Tyler in 1958. His father was a Russian immigrant who taught music at several colleges in Texas. His mother was killed in a car accident when Bernie was three, and his father died when he was 15. He graduated from Cooper High School in Abilene, Texas. While he was in school, he got a job at a local funeral home. At first, he did odd jobs, mopping the floor, mowing the lawn, but eventually he began helping out at the funerals. He seemed to have found his calling. He seemed to have a natural sense of empathy. He went to McNeese State University in Louisiana and earned an associate's degree in mortuary science. In 1985, he moved to Carthage and took a job as an assistant funeral director. He was extremely popular in town. He joined the United Methodist Church and led the choir, sang solos, 
and became a lay preacher, filling in when the pastor was out of town. One church member said, I liked his sermons a lot better than the paid preachers. He participated in community events, directing the community theater and bringing Broadway-style musicals to the small town. Everyone seemed to love burning, especially the older widows, and he seemed to love them. He always paid special attention to them, but his favorite seemed to be Marjorie Nugent. Marjorie was born in Carthage. In college, she met R.L. Nugent and they married. He was an oil man. They lived all around the Southwest and eventually settled in Midland, Texas, where their only child, Rod, was born. R.L. retired and they decided to move back to Marjorie's hometown of Carthage. He bought a controlling interest in the First National Bank, and they built a sprawling 6,000-square-foot mansion on the edge of town. Who was Marjorie? Well, it depends on who you were talking to. Some people said she was cheap and stuck up. One Carthage resident said she held her nose so high she might drown in a rainstorm. She seemed to hold grudges. She hadn't spoken to one of her sisters in years because of a dispute about their mother's will. She and her son, who lived in Amarillo, were estranged. Her granddaughters even sued her over the terms of a trust that she was administering. But other people said she wasn't so much mean as she was just shy. If a person cracked that rough exterior, she could be very thoughtful, sending birthday cards and thank you notes. Some said she even suffered from occasional periods of depression. In the early 90s, R.L. died of a sudden heart attack. Bernie helped conduct the funeral. Marge wasn't popular around town and there weren't many people there. But Bernie noted how devastated Marjorie looked. He sang a solo. And at the graveside, when Marjorie started shivering, he took off his coat and wrapped it around her and walked her to the car. For the next few weeks, he began to show up at her house with flowers and food, just checking on her, seeing how she was doing. Oh, and it should be noted, Marjorie was worth between $5 million and $10 million. Tongues started to wag around Carthage when Bernie showed up wearing R.L.'s $12,000 Rolex watch, a gift from Marjorie. After a while, Bernie quit his $18,000 a year job at the funeral home and became Marjorie's personal assistant and business manager. He got quite a bump in salary for that. He also became a signatory on her bank accounts and began calling her broker to direct her investments. And, he said, with her permission, he began spending some of his money on himself. He bought a Cadillac. He took flight lessons and eventually bought two airplanes. He and Marjorie traveled all over the world. They went to New York for Broadway plays they took a cruise to Europe on the Queen Mary and flew back on the Concorde. 
They went to Egypt. They went to the Orient. Sometimes they even shared hotel rooms and, and cabins on a cruise. They seemed happy. At one point, Marjorie changed her will, making Bernie her sole beneficiary. People began to tell Bernie that he was going to have to pay a price for this, that Marjorie expected things in return. Turns out they were right. Marjorie expected Bernie to be at her beck and call. He was to lay out her medicine for her. He was to have her meals prepared at a certain time. He was not to be spending time with other widows or other people around town. He would be talking to his friends and suddenly his pager would go off and he would be expected to drop whatever he was doing, go to Marjorie and attend to whatever needs she had. According to Bernie, she gradually took control of his life. Then one day, Bernie snapped. They were in the garage and Marjorie was haranguing him about something and leaning against the wall was a 22 caliber rifle that Margie had, had made him buy to shoot the armadillos that were digging up her garden. Bernie said that it's almost as if he was watching someone else. He picked up the rifle and he shot her in the back four times. He covered her in a sheet, drug her body to the deep freezer and pulled out some of the meat stuffed her body in the deep freeze and covered it with the meat. He took a garden hose and he hosed down all the blood in the garage. And for the next nine months, he went on living just as he always had, spending Marjorie's money, some on himself, some on other causes. He donated $100,000 to the Methodist Church. When he heard local businesses were failing, he loaned them money Sometimes he even bought the businesses. When people asked about Marjorie, he told them, oh, you just missed her. Then he began telling them that, that she was sick, that she was in a hospital in another town. Then he told people that she was developing Alzheimer's. Then she had a stroke and she was in a hospital in Houston. Eventually, Someone notified her son that they were worried about Marjorie, so he and one of his daughters came to Carthage from Amarillo and began to search the house, and eventually they looked in the deep freeze. They took out some of the meat, and there was Marjorie. They called the police, and Bernie was arrested in short order, and shortly after going to the police station, he confessed. But even with the body in the deep freeze, the confession, Danny Buck knew he was going to have a very hard time getting a jury to convict Bernie in Carthage. In fact, people told him so. They seemed upset that he was even going to, to put Bernie on trial. It got so bad that Danny Buck quit the Methodist church because the preacher kept insisting on praying for Bernie on Sunday morning services. So Danny Buck got the trial moved a couple of counties away to the town of St. Augustine. That jury found Bernie guilty and sentenced him to life in prison. And that's where the movie ended. But the story was just beginning. A young lawyer from Dallas saw the movie and 
became interested. She read the transcript of the trial and talked to Bernie's attorney. She eventually was able to talk to Bernie himself. And one thing she noticed as she read the trial transcript and looked at the police reports was that they had found several books in Bernie's house about child abuse. On one of their visits, Bernie confessed that he had in fact been abused by an uncle when he was a teenager. She talked to Danny Buck and she eventually filed a writ of habeas corpus on Bernie's behalf asking for a new trial claiming that the prosecution withheld evidence that might have helped Bernie. Danny Buck himself supported her filing. He said that had he known about the sexual abuse he might not have even filed first-degree murder charges and, and filed a lesser charge, and certainly he would, would not have asked for life imprisonment. The judge granted their motion and ordered Bernie released on $10,000 bond pending a new trial. Up in Amarillo, Marjorie's family saw a news report about this and they were enraged. One of Marjorie's granddaughters was an attorney in Dallas. They hired their own attorney from Houston and a private investigator to dig up evidence against Bernie. They believe that the whole thing was based on the movie Bernie, that it generated sympathy, and they said the movie and its portrayal of Marjorie was bunk. They said Marjorie was not mean and vindictive. She was, they said, a, a loving wife and sister and grandmother who was just shy and naive and gullible. This, of course, from one of the daughters who had sued her. But they disputed Bernie's reputation as a philanthropist. They presented evidence that he had spent almost all of Marjorie's money, that he had forged checks and deposit certificates, and they put forth the theory that Marjorie had in fact discovered all of this and was about to go to the police. That, they said, was the reason for the murder, not a dissociative episode based on, on his history of being abused as a child. Oh, and by the way, they pointed out, Bernie didn't shoot Marjorie four times in the back from across the garage. He only shot her once. Then he walked up to her, put the gun right against her back, and pumped three more slugs into her at point-blank range. There was a new trial in 2016, and due to the efforts of the family, Danny Buck and the original judge recused themselves. The office of the Texas Attorney General prosecuted the case. Bernie's lawyers did not dispute that he had killed Marjorie Nugent but they asked that he be sentenced to time served, or at most an additional three years, which would bring his total incarceration to 20 years. The new jury took just four hours. The verdict? Guilty of murder in the first degree. The sentence? 99 years in prison. Bernie will be eligible for parole in 2029. So, who was Bernie Teeter? Who, for that matter, was Marjorie Nugent? As is so often the case, we may never know. Marjorie can't give us her side of the story, 
And as for Bernie, well, he has his story, and he's sticking to it. This story has gotten even crazier since I saw the movie. As you mentioned, a lot has happened since the movie ended, and we will get into that soon. Uh, but first, we will go over the trends of the crime, sponsored by Style All Mode. So, the 90s are a really fun fashion era, but unfortunately, <laughs> this fun fashion was not utilized in this crime at all. I don't think the fun fashion of the, of the uh, 90s made it all the way down to Carthage, Texas. It did not. So this will be a short Trends of the Crime, but I am going to tell you what these people in Carthage, Texas were wearing in 1996. Uh, so Bernie Tita, in the movie at least, and in photos that I have seen of Bernie, at the time of this crime, he was wearing brown suits, black suits, gray suits. He would have some fun with the ties. Not too much fun, but he had some color in his ties. Uh, he also he also rocked a mustache. Was that common in the 90s for men, Dad? That type of mustache? Well, I had one. You did have one. I, I had my 90s mustache. <laughs> I won't tell you what people uh, said it looked like, but uh, yeah, mustaches were in vogue back then. For sure. Uh, when Bernie was not working at the funeral home or at church, he was wearing hemmed starched shorts with a belt and usually short-sleeved button-downs, and these shorts and shirts were more fun than his suits, you know. He put some color in these and some pattern, uh, but nothing too crazy at all. Um, now, back, speaking of suits, of course, you know, in Texas, the, the Western-style suits would have been, you know, more in fashion. Um, the embroidered uh, pockets, the, the embroidery around the, the lapels of the suits, I assume. Um, even some bolo ties. Mm -hmm. uh, but outside of Carthage, in, in uh, say, the fashion centers of the world, like, oh, I don't know, Dallas, um, <laughs> would would uh, men be wearing vests in the 90s, or had that kind of gone out of fashion in the 80s? I know I had suits back in the 80s and 90s where three-piece suits were, were in vogue. We, we had vests and um, pocket chains and things like that. I'd say that had kind of gone out, especially by late 90s. Um, so I was out of style is what you're telling me. But it's not your fault. Okay. We are in the middle of the country along with Texas. So, you know, it's not our fault. We're a little behind. But when I think of men's fashion in the 90s, I'm thinking of Miami Vice. Uh, just a like a white suit jacket, white pants, and a bright shirt. I know that wasn't the case everywhere, but that's... That's where my head goes for men mm -hmm. in the 90s, or streetwear, you know, mm -hmm. saggy pants, snapbacks. You know, I think of Clueless a lot, <laughs> which was more teenager, but uh, yeah. My research this week was unfortunately, for me, more focused on the boring side. Speaking of Clueless, which Clueless character would you have been had you been in that movie? Obviously, share. Okay. I don't even have to think about that. Who would you have been, Dad? I can't really remember any of the male characters, so uh, I don't know. I think you would be Christian. Now, you're not gay, Dad. Christian was <laughs> gay. Well, I was going to say but... <laughs> that, but I, did, 
but I didn't <laughs> want to offend any. But well, no, but, you're not gay. Well, and, and as as Jerry Seinfeld would say, not that there's anything wrong with that. Exactly. Um, I I do compare you to Christian though, because Christian loved the '40s music. He loved Sinatra. He had some style and pizzazz. Um, and Christian, you know, Cher didn't even know he was gay. She she had a thing for him, so okay, he had to tell her. So I mean. Look at that. Uh, but yes, I would definitely be Cher, you know, style icon, a little ditzy sometimes, but charming. You know, I'm just, I'm just perfect. So I'm Cher, obviously. I don't have her beautiful blonde locks, but that's okay. Um, all right, Marjorie, our, our leading lady of the story. She was old at the time. Uh, and she was wearing I'm, th I'm picturing like florals, house dresses. Now she was rich, so her clothes were of high quality, but they weren't like the uh, high fashion of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Yes, she did wear, when, when she would wear separates, they would be like nice slacks with a nice blouse mm -hmm. sort of thing. Uh, Danny Buck, our real Texas man here, Stetson cowboy hats. Cowboy boots. His glasses were aviator style. Uh, he wore suits. He was a district attorney, so of course he wore suits on the job. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on Danny Buck, Dad? Well, he's my hero, but uh, <laughs> you know, beyond that, uh, the the way he portrayed was uh, that he was certainly cool. Now, but let's just say in real life, Danny Buck Davidson did not look like Matthew McConaughey. He did not. No, Danny Buck was short, Danny Buck was fat, and Matthew McConaughey, as we both know, is not. Correct. He did not look like hunky Matthew McConaughey. I, I wonder if they were trying to make Matthew McConaughey look a little less handsome, but it didn't work. <laughs> not possible. All right. Well, I, I tell you, though, I always have liked the Stetson cowboy hats. I have one. I don't wear it too often. I've even got a pair of boots, as you know. You do? With uh, uh, Texas flag. With the Texas flag on them. So I'll, I'll wear those when the when the weather gets warm. They look I mean, cool. Colder. They are, and they're comfortable. I think mm -hmm. boots are very comfortable. And we do make our way to Texas quite often. We'll get to this very shortly, but Dad is from Texas, mm -hmm. uh, the Lone Star State. All right, you want to get into our discussion? Yeah, I think we've got some things to talk about today. Well, I do want to touch on this movie that we both love. Uh, now, you mentioned the answer to the trivia question. Let's make it even more clear. Mm -hmm. What is the hymn that Bernie sings at the beginning of the film? Love lifted me. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. <laughs> uh, yes. This the first is... time I have ever sung in public, by the way, folks. <laughs> You have witnessed history, everyone. Um, yes, when we first saw this movie, my dad, my mom, and I all just about died on that scene. It was just so funny and so, like, it introduces you to the character of Bernie so perfectly. And it's so funny and sweet and, like, pure. And we didn't even know the story, right? We right. didn't know the story. I've never heard of it. And I remember, and we... It was like a movie we saw on demand. We love Jack Black. We said, okay, let's watch it. We didn't know anyone was going to die. And 
it was shocking when we got to that scene. It was. I think, I think, in fact, we didn't realize it was based on a true story until the end. And then the credits rolled and we saw the actual Bernie Tita in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talked about townspeople actually having bit parts in the movie. Yep. And uh, yep. I think you did some research on that, didn't you? As far as how those people... Yes. Uh, so this movie was directed and uh, produced uh, by Richard Linklater, who also has worked on School of Rock, Dazed and Confused, and Boyhood. Three really great movies. Um, and I know for sure he directed it, but he obviously had a big hand in the casting process as well as everything else. Um, and they wanted to cast local actors. And they said that to audition to be a townsperson, and these townspeople had, most of them had lots of lines. Um, You had to either be from Texas or Louisiana. And the first question they would ask you, ask the local actors uh, was, where are you from? And this was because they wanted it to be very authentic. And some of these people were from Carthage and they had to have the correct accent and they wanted it to be a natural accent, so. We do have some favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> and mm-hmm. as I said, Dad is from Texas, so this this monologue in particular was a really great one for us. Do you want to redo it the best you can? I'll try. Now, um, this is when this is when I got hooked on the movie. They're sitting in a cafe, and some old guy is talking about Texas. And behind him, they flash up a map, and he said, You know, Texas is, is really... There's really five different states. You got your you got your West Texas, kind of flat ranches. You got your North Texas, Dallas, all the rich Dallas snobs and their Mercedes. You got your Houston, the carcinogenic coast we call it. You got Central Texas and Austin, People's Republic of Austin, hairy legged women and fruitcake liberals. South Texas, now San Antonio, that's 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 where the Tex meets the Mex, food-wise. You got the Panhandle, almost forgot about that. Most people do. You got East Texas, where the South begins. You got the Pine Curtain. <laughs> and tell us why that's so funny, Dad. Well, I was born and raised in the Panhandle. That's the north northwestern part of Texas. That's uh. It is a different world up in the Panhandle. It's mostly small towns, um, very conservative, but people are just so, so friendly. Um, great place to grow up. But uh, you think of Texas, most people actually don't think of the Panhandle. But right. uh, cool nights, blue sky. Um, I love it. Mm-hmm. It is a fun place to visit. It's very beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I I also thought this would be funny to r- recreate because as of now, Austin, Texas has our highest listenership. Yay, Austin! And we don't know who you are. We can't think of who we know in Austin, but we love you guys. Austin is my favorite city in the United States. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, which is like a subdued version of Austin, but I, you know, of course, Austin is more fun to me uh so we love you guys and i hope to get out there soon when you stop getting covid so um yes some of my other favorite lines uh 
Marjorie's late husband when he was alive in the film, he would say, I'll guarantee I'm Tia. And I, I think I've said that multiple times, but I forgot that it was from this movie. But I must have gotten it from there. Now, what, what about some of the lines that people uh, used in describing Marjorie? Those were funny. Yes, and, and now after knowing this whole story, I feel a little bad, but they are funny. So we'll go ahead and re retell them. There are people in town, honey, that would have shot her for $5. She'd rip you a brand new three-bedroom, two-bath, double-wide asshole. <laughs> she didn't like that, Pastor. He wore Bermuda shorts on his day off. <laughs> Which that line reminded me of my, my lovely grandmother, but she didn't like shorts and people who wore shorts. Is that true? It was. In <laughs> fact, um, I was a um, I was uh, doing a, an internship as a youth pastor in Wichita, Kansas, and I got in trouble from the senior pastor because I was out mowing the lawn wearing shorts. <laughs> well, I'm glad times have changed. We're both in shorts right now. We are. <laughs> All right. Bernie did have an interesting life in prison. Mm -hmm. uh, he he was, I didn't know this, he was attacked by fellow inmates in 1999 shortly after entering the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I can't find any details on this, but all he has said is that it happened and his life in prison is no longer violent like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Did you know that happened? I just, I, I read it when I was doing research on, on the second trial. So mm -hmm. no, I had not heard that before. Yeah. And I don't know any details other than that. But, Sad. Um, you know, he, he seems to uh, have adjusted well, I guess, as well as anybody could. I, they, they said he was a model prisoner, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Model prisoner. Uh, his model behavior earned him a spot in minimum custody at the state prison. And he said in 2014 that he's resigned to a life behind bars, but of course he does really want to go home. And he often talks about about being okay with his life in prison, but he misses his friends and family and obviously misses his home. Now he compared it to something. You just I didn't hear this. You just told me this a few minutes ago. What, yes. What, how, what, what, did, what does he say that uh, prison is like? Well, Dad and I, you and I both have a lot of experience in church camps. Mm -hmm. I never thought about comparing prison to a church camp, <laughs> but Bernie sure did. Uh, <laughs> a line that I thought was very funny. He said, it's just like going to church camp, if you will, with a whole bunch of strangers that you really don't want to be there with. Once you realize what everyone is there for, it's really okay. And I laugh at that because I met my husband at church camp and I did not want to go to that church camp. Uh, but I found a husband, so wow! I sound like such a little good Christian girl, don't I? Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to compare your husband to Bernie. No, <laughs> I Yet. hope. I hope not. <laughs> I do listen to enough true crime stuff, though, that I know the husband always did it. So, <laughs> all right. Um, but my husband, my husband's very sweet. Don't get me wrong. All right. So was Bernie. <laughs> Jacob, if you're listening, I love you, and I know you won't kill me. All right. Um, Bernie does do many things he did on the outside, but obviously on a smaller scale. Um, he teaches health classes. He, of course, sings in the choir, and he shares devotionals, which is very nice. Mm -hmm. And he also tries to help his fellow prisoners by donating personal hygiene products like deodorant, shampoo, and toothpaste. He obviously can't help them financially like he 
would have been able to before, but he does try and help as much as he can. And you said something about him leading literacy programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he leads uh, leads literacy uh, programs for inmates who, who uh, uh, had trouble with education. Uh, so he, he's trying to be as helpful as he can. It kind of reminds me of uh, one of our earlier podcasts about, uh, about Mr. Loeb, who uh, when he was convicted, he spent, what, 20 to 30 years in prison, but uh, really worked to, to try to help other inmates. So he's, he's trying to make the best of it um, and uh, seems to be trying to pay back society for, for what he did. And we need to remember, I mean, he's never denied what he did. He, he admits that uh, it was wrong. He said he deserves to be in jail. I think he'd like to be out. He, he thinks probably as much time as he's done is enough. But um, he is, uh, he's trying, I think, to do something positive in the world. I did read some interesting stuff that he had said about, he was saying things like, I deserve to be here, but people who have committed crimes in big towns aren't going to spend as long in prison for a similar crime as I will, which I thought was interesting. And it's because in a small town, everyone knows everybody. So it's a lot more personal. I'm guessing mm-hmm. is why. And he did say something, a quote I found interesting on justice. He said, there are people in here who have created and committed much more heinous crimes than I can even imagine, and they'll be going home very quickly. That's the problem. I'm glad Lady Justice has some blindfolds on, because if she saw what's going on, she'd be flipping her wig. There's such a disparity in the justice system. What do you think about that? I think anybody who just takes a step back and, and looks at our criminal justice system sees there's a there's a huge disparity in in our justice system. Um, you know, but it's always been there. I, I hope that the more people open their eyes to it, maybe we can see some real criminal justice reform. Uh, but it's certainly nothing for us to be proud of right now, I don't think. Do you agree that if this had happened in a larger town, his sentence would be lighter? A one-time criminal offense, but a pretty bad one. I I don't know. I mean, let's remember the people of Carthage, if, if the trial would have been held in Carthage, he probably would have been acquitted. Uh, but when they got over to St. Augustine, where no one knew him, um, you know, the justice was swift. And again, remember, he shot an 81-year-old woman in the back. So I that's, I don't think there'd be a lot of sympathy for that. That's uh, what confused me about what he said. I, I didn't really... I, I liked his quote that I just read, but I didn't really agree that if this happened in Dallas, he would get any... No. No, I... Any I, less. I didn't apply that quote to him. I applied it to just some of the racial yes. and socioeconomic disparities in our system. And I agree with that, yes. I just think what he did to an objective person is bad, and with some of the evidence that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, Interestingly, he does continue to work with the funeral homes, and Mm -hmm. he also spends free time in the craft shop. There were photos of him at the end of the movie, of the real Bernie, teaching people how to embroider, just really cute photos. and, but here's kind of what he does with the funeral homes. He says the funeral homes will send him names of people who have died and he creates a little memorial 
the memorial usually says in loving memory of so-and-so and it has a little pot of flowers he puts the deceased's name and the year they were born and the year they died then he packages it up really nice puts a frame around it puts it on an easel and sends it to the funeral home oh. hmm cute uh, he also uh, does still correspond with some of the people from Carthage. They will email him. He's allowed to read the emails, but not allowed to respond. He also writes a lot of letters, and visitation is limited to just two hours on the weekends and only to people on his contact list. All right, let's talk about the nature of his relationship with Marjorie. Mm. Was it sexual? Were they just platonic companions? We may never know, but let's take a closer look. All right. You want me to start? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, the movie portrayed Bernie killing Marjorie because of her being controlling, and it really put Marjorie in a negative light and Bernie in a very positive light and portrayed him just snapping and killing her. And in the movie, I believe all the shots were from far away. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Yes. Yes, in the movie. Um, but like Dad mentioned in the story, some say that he actually killed her because she had just found out he had been stealing from her. I personally... After reading more about this, I, I find it a little hard to believe that he just snapped. Uh, one of the things that is fishy to me is that he lied about her whereabouts and had just instant stories about where she was. Uh, he didn't admit to it right away. Like he, in the movie, he seemed panicky, but he also, I mean, that was a movie, but instead of being like, oh my gosh, I have to call the police and tell them what I've done. It was like, okay, let's clean this up, put her in the freezer and tell everyone, we're, like, make up stuff, let's lie to everyone, blah, blah, blah. And it seems to me that if someone with as much empathy as he is portrayed to have uh, snapped and murdered someone, they might have a, have some empathy and be honest about what they've done. But I, it wasn't me, so I don't and, know. And I agree, but on the <laughs> other hand, she was 81 years old, and he was a funeral director. He had uh, been around people who had uh, probably died in, in various ways. I would have thought that if he really wanted to get rid of her, there's a lot of ways he could have done it without arousing this much suspicion. She's 81 years old. She could fall down a flight of stairs pretty easily, especially with a little push. She could die in her sleep. With, with a pillow pills. over her oh, head. Okay. I mean, I I kind of wonder, if he really wanted her dead, I would think there would have been a way to do it without arousing as much suspicion. So, I don't know. This whole this whole case just baffles me, and, and this is one of the... This is one area. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I did see something where... And I hadn't thought of all that. That's a very good point. I saw something where he had thought before this happened he wanted to kill her and or he thought of her dying in a slow way like do you did you see anything about that what way was that well he said to one he said at one point i thought about just taking a baseball bat and hitting right. her in the head with it uh but he I didn't think, want to see her hurt right didn't want to see her hurt so he shoots her four times um <laughs> at least it's faster he had talked about i wish she would die way out i yeah the we just will never know mm -hmm. uh, about this. But you you asked about their relationship in general. Was it sexual? Mm -hmm. Was it platonic? Was it you know, both? What do you think? 
Yes. Well, like I said, no one knows for sure. Uh, a woman named Angela Rowe lived with Marjorie and Marjorie's husband when he was alive with her. With Angela lived there with her husband and children. Uh, and after Marjorie's husband died, Angela and her family had lunch with Marjorie and Bernie. She recalls something while Marjorie was washing the dishes. Her quote, her Angela's testimony was, and he put the front of his body, the lower part of his body on her backside and kissed her and looked at me as if to say, look what I just did, Roe said, and she blushed. Roe also testified to helping Marjorie buy outfits, including a nightgown for a trip Nugent and Tito were planning to New York, where they would see Miss Saigon on Broadway and share a room. She said, I wasn't quite sure about the nightgown. She said the sheer or the nature of the gown was a little bit flowy and sheer. The nightgown was mentioned in the movie, but in more of a joking way, in a more dramatic way. We don't know how sheer the nightgown was or whatever. Oh, yuck. <laughs> not a good uh, visual. Not, not a good word picture here. Um, Sorry. You know, now, when, when they were uh, preparing for his second trial, there was an article in Texas Monthly Magazine. And uh, the, uh, the author of that article just flat out asked him if, if it was a sexual relationship. And they said, Bernie just burst out laughing, threw his hands in the air and said, of course not. I'm gay. Yes. So, you know, it, there was speculation around town that Bernie was gay. Uh, people around town said, well, he's a little light in the loafers. Effeminate. And he was effeminate, and that's the way Jack Black portrayed him. But it was never just out and out said that, that he was gay. But at least in this interview, some 20 years after the, after the, the crime, uh, he said, well, of course I was gay. And, but, you know, this was Carthage, Texas in the 90s. It's not something you go around advertising. advertising. So, so uh, Bernie denied it was ever any kind of a sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. But he had a reason to deny that, I guess. So who knows? Who knows? Yes. And, you know, of course, he could have, it could have been sexual as a sort of repayment. You know, we just never sure. know if it was ever sexual at sure. all. Sure. Uh, and there was a funny line in the movie from one of the townspeople that said, I heard he was gay, but he was such a good Christian man. Everybody thought, you know, how could that be? So, of course, the ladies of the town, of course he's not gay. And then she went into saying how the disciples never married and no <laughs> one no one ever thought they were gay. So why would Bernie be gay? It has also come out that uh, when, uh, when the IRS... Uh, I got a search warrant to search Bernie's house because with all this money, obviously the IRS thought, well, there's got to be some tax implications. Uh, during that search, they found some videotapes of some prominent people, including law enforcement officers, um, in Bernie's house engaged in what was called in court filings unwholesome and unnatural behavior. <laughs> So there, there is a theory out there that uh, one of the reasons Bernie confessed was that the police threatened to make all these tapes public. Oh. So that was that was part of uh, his motion for a for a new trial as well. That yes, I confess, but it was coerced mm -hmm. uh, with these tapes that 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 they found. Hmm. 
but I'd never heard any more about that either. So, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Um, but clearly, he, he to this day does not deny the basic facts that, yes, he shot Marjorie Nugent. I was going to uh, say it would be difficult for him to deny yes, that ever. Yes. The, que- the, 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 the question is why. Yes. And um, But you dug up some interesting evidence that Bernie, uh, that Marjorie was not the first wealthy widow that Bernie, Bernie uh, shall we say, befriended. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about that. Well, I I did learn, you know, Bernie, according to her, Marjorie's son Rod, isolated Marjorie from her family and friends and late husband's business associates, and that Bernie allegedly embezzled over three million dollars from Nugent. So he had expensive taste, apparently liked money, and we know he had expensive taste because they would take first class trips. And he wore the, he accepted the Rolex and everything. But yes, apparently Marjorie was not the only one. Uh, Greg Kramer, a Louisiana funeral director who used to work with Bernie, testified that Bernie worked well with families and widows, especially as you mentioned earlier, Dad. And uh, Don Lipsy, Uh, Bernie's former boss in a Carthage funeral home said that a widow from Louisiana who knew Bernie called his work phone line asking that Bernie return money to her. That was from the Texas Tribune. So, as we mentioned, Bernie really got close to the widows and he was gay, so it was likely to get their money, uh, which kind of flips my whole brain about the case. Mine too, uh, but I have to tell you, I'll probably still watch the movie because it is just so funny. It is, and I love Jack Black so much. So, and he is. It is a great movie. Uh, the case is very puzzling, and it's really gotten me thinking about whose side to be on. So we just we'll never know Marjorie's side, which is very sad. And of course, I don't condone anyone killing anyone. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a. It's a teaser, that's for sure. It is. Well, this was fun. Who's next? Or which crime is next, I should say? Next week, we will be discussing the Black Dahlia. All right, we will post a trivia question about the Black Dahlia before the episode goes up, and we will answer it in the episode. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Have a good week. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Join our VIP Facebook group to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive videos and content. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There is a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Kate Mays. Thank you to Alex Joachim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.